0: Today's scripture reading comes from Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 31, which is also found on page 8 of your bulletin. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. This is the word of the Lord.
1: We're going to take a step uh, into the first couple chapters of Genesis uh, to emphasize one of our core values at Metro Presbyterian Church, which is creativity, uniqueness and creativity because in the city you have many creative people and it's, you can't deny and you can't reject that. Actually, the church um, is about flourishing. And so it's very important that we talk about all the gifts and talents and where does that come from? Where does that come from in our, in our innately in our human person, in our condition, How is it that we're so blessed to be creative people, thinkers, artists, musicians, um, scientists, researchers, philosophers? And so um, Genesis teaches us all these things. Genesis teaches us several things. What's wrong with the world? How God's working in the world and and how this entire narrative, how, how God's creation, how it turns out, how it ends up. And he doesn't write it the way you would read a math book or a science book, he writes history. He writes it in the form of narrative, a story. And he doesn't teach us in this story how the world was created. You know, Genesis is not a science book. He teaches us why, why God created the world. He focuses on that. And, And as we look into why God created the world, we start to learn amazing truths about ourselves and about God himself, It says here, God made us in his image, the Imago Dei, in his likeness. And that has implications. Implications everywhere in our lives. Um, Since the beginning, um, if if you think about it, since the beginning of time, when God created the earth, there were three things that existed before there's ever any mention about sin. We hear about family, God created Eve, right? We hear about work, God worked, six days he rests on the seventh day so we have rest family work and rest before sin ever entered the world there was family there was work and there was rest and if you think about it there are the three most broken areas in our lives what god did what he's doing in these three things so there's implications and we learn these things here in this text and so over the course of the next week or so today and next week we're going to learn about our relationships to one another creativity Our relationships to the city, you know, it's creativity. And we're going to learn about our relationship to our work. You know, that's what happens when creativity becomes abused, you know, for the sake of our own glory and our own worth. Um, How rest gets abused or sacrificed. So these are things that we're going to talk about over the next week or so. And um, we're going to learn three things today. What does it mean when we are created in God's image? One, our inherent value, human value. The the value of our condition. Number two, the brokenness of our condition. Number three, the repair of our condition. The value, human value, human brokenness, human repair. First, our value. It's absolutely critical that we understand the implications, because of the implications of this text. God says, verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them, he says. That's what it says here. That God created us in his image. Amazing thing here. And there, here, here's the, uh, the first real implication here. We have glory. We have significance. Human beings have value. Human beings have dignity. And it goes beyond your gender, beyond your profession, beyond where you've been, what you've done, no matter how low you've fallen, no matter how high you are, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done or what you do, every human being on the earth has inherent dignity and value. Science can't assure you of that. Science does not teach us that. Science teaches us that human beings are complex, but it doesn't teach us that we are valuable. It actually goes against that in many ways. Philosophy can't teach you that we have inherent value. Philosophy teaches us the extent of our complexity again. If we are the product of mere causes that have no end, If we are just accidents, cosmic accidents, if we're just a series of atoms that over the course of a billion years, billions of years, have been mashed together to become these complex organisms that we are, then what is the basis? We have no basis to argue for justice. We have no right to sit there and and talk about the pain of the city. We have no right. There's nothing in us that says, there's no reason for us to say, for us to be angry about rape, for us to be angry about murder, for us to be angry about uh, tyranny in the world. There's no reason for us to do that. Because if human beings have no inherent value, if we were not created in the image of God, there's no reason for us to say that this is wrong. Because if we're just atoms mashed together, what's to say that anything is wrong or right? What is our basis to argue for human rights unless we were created in God's image, in a transcendent image? Every human being has dignity. That's what this text is saying. That's the first uh, uh, implication. What's the second impl- implication? You know, because th- therapists, therapists always say you have wor- you're worthy, you're worthy, don't think less of yourself. But if you think about it, therapists are scientists. Their academia, their scholarship is based on the very truths or supposed truths that go against the fact that humans have value. So what is their basis for saying that you have worth, that you are valuable? Only the Bible, only the Bible that teaches us that we have inherent worth no matter who we are, no matter what class we are, no matter what your net worth is, physically, monetarily, financially, only the Bible teaches us that we have worth. Now, the second thing, the second implication of that is, is how we treat people. Because we easily fear one another. We easily get annoyed with one another. Um, we're human beings and born with an inherent sensitivity. And our sensitivities are all different, varying degrees. So one thing that one person may say because they have thicker skin, another person takes very, very sensitively. So we easily get annoyed by one another. And because of that, we easily fear one another. And we distance ourselves from one another. And, uh, you know, one group looks at another group. One group of people look at another group of people. Red states against the blue states. Um, red people <laughs> against bluer people in that sense. Uh, we look at one another and we look at the way they dress or our lifestyles or our salaries or our class, you know, where we studied or how we studied. And, and it's easy to kind of segregate people according to those, uh, uh, I guess, uh, delineations. But, but the truth is, um, it's so easy then to get into a car, drive far out of the city as a result. And, uh, you know, if you think about the nature of the suburb, the meaning of the suburb, the countryside, what is the meaning of the suburb? It's to, inc- it's to reduce the number of people per square mile so you have more acreage. It actually is based historically on a, w- on a very Western European model of uh, fiefdom and estates where, you know, your neighbor may not be it may be a, a certain distance away from you, so that if you ever wanted to just lock yourself away, you know, and be away from community, the suburbs is the best place to do that. The countryside is the best place to do that. All my life, growing up, I want, it was my dream. I wanted to, I wanted to. Um, it's not so much the American dream, the white picket fence that I wanted, but I wanted to um, live in the suburbs. I wanted to live in the countryside. It was my dream until um, I was forced to live in the city for school, and um, and I fell in love with the city. It. It wasn't easy the first four years. um, I liked being away, kind of a little bit of distance from the city. But as the years went by and as I lived in the city, there came a point in time when I moved back to Philadelphia. The only place that I remembered was where I originally grew up, which was out in the burbs. And so that was the only place I remembered in the city. I moved out to Plymouth Meeting. And and when I lived there for a year, um, no more sirens. um, No more sirens. And it was a bizarre experience for me. It actually took me a while to get used to that. I couldn't sleep at night for a while. And and the thing is, um, uh, you know, I, I, fell, I start to fall in love with the city. The city is evil, they say. The city is dangerous, they say. Stay away from dangerous people with dangerous lifestyles. But um, if you think about it, and, and I didn't really think about this until one of my mentors in class actually shared this, and he's quoted, this is quoted all the time, but he says, you know, God loves the city more than the suburbs. God loves the city more than the suburbs. Why? Because, um, very simple logic, very simple. Um, in the city, there's more, uh, well, in the suburbs, there's more plants than people. In the city, there's more people than plants. And since God loves people more than plants, God will always love the city more than the suburb. That's what he said. Makes a lot of sense. Very simple, makes a lot of sense. God loves cities more than more than the country. God loves people. In Atlanta, you have 6,000 people. Downtown Atlanta, 6,000 people per square mile. Very dense. In Philadelphia, you have Twelve thousand people per square mile— incredible density. You ever get into one of the regional rail lines at around seven forty-five in the morning and head into the city? It's packed. People are annoyed. They're huffing and puffing because they gotta stand, you know, and they hold on to one another and they're trying to, you know, fiddle around with their iPhones and read an article and they're bumping around and bumping into each other and you hear and huffing and puffing. But the thing is, God loves the city. God loves the density. God wants to save the city. That's the city. That's people. Tim Keller, uh, one of my, I guess in some ways, if there's such a thing as uh, to idolize somebody as a preacher or as a church planter, he's a missiologist, he's a philosopher, he's an artist, all rolled up in one, and a great speaker and writer. He says, the reason why God loves the city is because in the city there is more image of God if we were made in the image of God, there's more image of God per square mile in the city. And so it might get annoying, it might get scary at times because sin does that. Sin brings the evil, sin brings the violence. But because sin does that, you know, James says, regardless of what sin does, James says, James chapter three, don't curse one another. Because what you're doing is when you're cursing somebody, you are cursing the image of God. People have inherent value no matter what they've done. We were made for the immortal. We were made, our lives are weighted in glory. And, and the weight is so heavy, the weight is so thick that only humility can carry that kind of weight. We need to respect one another. We need to treat everybody with respect. Natural dignity, that's another implication. Another implication is justice. If you think about the logic here, if we have inherent dignity, and as a result we have to treat everyone with respect, third, how do you view Justice human rights. Where did the idea come from, this concept of having inalienable rights? Where did this notion of inalienable rights, freedom for everybody, come from? Did it come from the Western thought, Western philosophers? Absolutely not. The first quote printed in your bulletin comes from Aristotle. He believed that some people were born to be slaves. He believed that that was absolutely necessary for society to thrive, that some people were born to rule and some people were born to be slaves. So Western thought did not bring in the notion of freedom for all, inalienable rights, human rights. In fact, it wasn't until Christian thought entered into Western society that the notion of freedom for all started to take hold. So contrary to what we believe, the idea of rights infiltrated Western society. It wasn't the other way around. Martin, Martin Luther King, the, that quote is also printed in your bulletin in the front. It was a quote from his amazing, it was an amazing sermon, you know, or some people call it speech, but it was a sermon. It was a quote called, the, the, it was quoted as the American dream speech. What does he say? Every human being is blessed with inalienable rights. And that comes, it's hinged on, it's founded on, it's anchored in, he says himself, the concept of the image of God. Because if you take that away, you lose respect for all people, all types of people. He says, every man is significant. What happens in society that loses this idea of justice if you don't believe because of the image of God? What happens if you say, you know what, um, you know, I don't really believe in the image of God, and as a result, what, hap- you know, what happens if you lose that sense of justice? Here's what happens. You know, what makes humans, you have to think about this, what makes humans worthy of rights today? Today. This is a huge problem today because people have varying degrees of understanding or agreement in this area. If you don't believe that we were created in in the image of God, then all you have to rely on is your social conscience, your own logic, your own reason. Friends, 50 or 60 years ago, the prevailing thinkers and scientists, logical reasoners, lived in Germany. And they exercise their understanding of justice based on conscience, their own social conscience, their own logic, and their own reasoning. You can't leave it to reason and logic. You see, if we, all we do is afford rights to people based on their capacity to exercise rights. You know, if you're the ruling authority, and you say, here, um, I get to exercise my... The only people who get rights to exercise rights are the people who have the capacity to experience and understand them. Then it becomes absolutely... Plausible to get rid of unborn infants. It becomes absolutely plausible to get rid of newborn infants, for that matter. They don't have any capacity to exercise human rights. It becomes absolutely plausible to get rid of anybody who who doesn't have any mental capacity to think, because they can't exercise any human rights. So people with Alzheimer's, people who are senile, people who are old, not able to contribute to society, they all become disfranchised. They all become you know uh, thrown away, really. And if you think about Western thought over the course of years, Aristotle's day, who were the ones that were dumped out? Who were the ones that were disfranchised, actually murdered babies? It was legal to throw them out if you were born a woman, if you were born a girl, throw them out. If you had some sort of mental disability, you were, you were, it was perfectly within reason to get rid of them, socially, in a social uh, manner, in whatever, whatever societally appropriate manner that they had. And so uh, you can't rely on just logic or reason or your capacity to understand it. It was Christians throughout the history of the church. They were the ones that first brought in the notion of, well, we're not going to murder our babies just because they were born uh, girls. It was Christians who said, no, we're going to take care of the poor. We're going we're to take care of our widows. We're going to take care of our orphans. It was Christians who brought in that thought. And they weren't just one-issue people like they are today. Today, you know, a lot of the religious, they're all one-issue people. Christians weren't one-issue people throughout history. They were, all, they were concerned. They championed all social issues, all sanctity of life issues, all um, protection issues, justice issues for all people. If you don't go that way, you're going to protect people fewer and fewer. So this is so important, absolutely important. Why do we have terrorism or, or sex trafficking today, or slavery. Why do we curse other people? Why do we manipulate one another? It's because at the root of it, we don't believe that we were made for the immortal. We don't believe in the image of God, that we were created in God's image. We don't believe that. You take a mirror. What does it mean to be created in the image of God? You take a mirror, you set it up. You look at it. If there's adequate light, you look at it, there's a reflection. And then you take a hammer and you shatter that mirror. That is us representing God, a shattered image because of sin. That's what we are. The Bible says that our Im- the image of God has been so broken in us, we don't even honor it. We don't even acknowledge it anymore. We're not grateful for it. We don't think about it. We don't live based on that. We, we don't even acknowledge it. We, don't, we certainly don't honor it at all. What would Metro Presbyterian Church look like if we decide to honor the notion that we were created in god's image the Mago day what if we took that seriously on one hand we would not um um we would not treat babies or the poor or the disfranchised the marginalized like nothing on one hand because every human being has value but on the other hand we wouldn't look down on people who already do or who did people who made tremendous mistakes along those lines we wouldn't look down on them you know why because they have inherent value. They have human value. Every human being has dignity. Second point what is an image? What does it mean to be created in God's image? It means that we reflect God, it means that we represent God. God created us to reflect His character. If you glance at the whole of this creation passage in chapter 1 of Genesis, we're going to see many aspects of God's character. You're going to see his uniqueness, the way he creates things so uniquely, and you see his order. I wish I could go into this because there's so many details here. Chapter one of Genesis, chapters one, two, and three probably tell you everything you need to know about God, creation, ourselves, really. And chapter one tells us everything that we need to know about the just amazing qualities and characteristics of God and who he is. His amazing attention to detail His creativity, everything created so uniquely. And it doesn't take much. You can just look around. Romans says if you look around, you see that creativity. It's enough for us to know that there must be a God. That's what Romans chapter 1 says, pretty much, if I were to summarize it. And if you look at here in this text, though, if you look at chapter 1, you see his kingship, his order, you know, the way he creates things, the way, the matter. It wasn't random. It was just tremendous order uh, and, and, and symmetry in the way he created the world. And his love for the world, the amazing attention, the peace, um, the way he built it in the context of community. He said, let us create man in our image. So, you know, let us, just take the words, let us, let us create. Let us create man. Let us create in our image. And and the ordinances, the the ordinance that he gives man here, uh, you see this in verse 28. God blessed them and he says to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, right? And then he says, subdue the earth, rule the earth. Those are the original three commandments. If you sum up God's amazing ordinances, Jesus later on mimics them, you know, in, you probably don't see this uh, right off the bat, Matthew 28. What does he say? Go. And ultimately what he says is, go and make disciples of all nations. And he says, subdue the earth, multiply, multiply, Be fruitful. That's mainly what he's saying. You're seeing that that Jesus is reinstating us as redeemed creatures, the church, as God's redeemed creatures to now do the same thing again. It was his original intent for us was to flourish. God's original intent for man was to flourish and grow and create life. Verses 26 to 28, face him. Reflect his character. Reflect him the way the moon would reflect the sun reflect his character reflect his brightness that means every one of us has the capacity to reflect the amazing qualities that god has his love his creativity his unique attention to order his unique attention to to beauty his intimacy the blessing that he has the way he serves the way he serves in community his fellowship his kingship. He says, you are established here as vice kings on earth, and I want you to rule the earth well. And if you rule the earth the way, the way it embodies my character, you will be prosperous. You will flourish in the way you rule. It's sin that takes away from that. It's sin that takes away from that. So the way, what are some of the implications of this? One, we build relationships. God says, let us make man in our image. And when he says, I want you to rule the earth, I want you to subdue it, that's a plural thing. He says, I've made you in my image, I want you to subdue the earth now, the way I, would, the way I rule as king, with order, with peace, with grace. And that's why the earliest kings, when God established the kings, his original intent, he only chose certain types of people. You know, they didn't have to be the most educated. They weren't the strongest. He always chose certain people who embodied the character of God. They were the ones who would rule. And actually, the way these kings throughout history, throughout the history of Israel, the way they would rule was very, very different. It was actually counterintuitive the way the, the countries around Israel would rule. Countries around Israel grew to increase their own wealth, to increase their own power, to increase their own tyranny. And yet he says, I don't want you to have any wealth. I want you to give away your money. You will have very little in your treasury. You will, and you will be, your idea of subduing will be with justice. I don't want any poor person living in, the, in our country. And so that's why you see the prophets. The prophets always emerge to say, you have violated God's laws. And what is the first thing that they always say? Why are there so many poor people? in our country. Why is there so much wickedness in our country? Because God's establishment, he says, if you rule the way you've been intended, the way I I have intended for you to rule, you will flourish. Look at my commands. Look at who I am. Be that. Because you were created like that. The same way. Second thing First is building relationships. That's one of the implications of um, being a reflection of God. Let us make man in our image, right? The second part is we're spiritually dependent beings. We're spiritually dependent beings. We are mirrors. So by nature, mirrors are dependent on a source of light. The moment we try to become the sun, generating our own light, number one, you can't. So you're going to work, and you're going to work, and you're going to work. To create some form of light on your own, and you can't. You're going to overwork. And so we create, we try to do that. Um, We are here not to produce our own light. We're always dependent on something outside of us to emit light. We're always dependent. The moment you forget about that, life starts to become very, very miserable. We were made to reflect God's glory. What is glory? What is glory? Glory is significance, glory is weight. Here's a chair. I'm going to put my weight on that chair. What am I saying? Now I'm putting everything that I have into this chair, trusting that it's going to hold me up. It's significant. It can hold it up. It's got weight. The weight of the sun, the light of the sun, the way it empowers, the way it emits, the way it's brightness, the way. It, the, what, the, the characteristics of, of the sun. We are just moons. We're reflecting that nature. And so we're made to reflect that, That means that we get our significance always from the outside of us. And and that means that we're always looking for validation. By nature, we're always looking for validation. We're always looking for significance. We're always looking for worth outside of us. Now, most of us are taught to say growing up, well, you know, that's not true because for me, I don't really care what other people think about me. All I care is what I think about myself. You, know, you guys ever watch Liar, Liar, a very old movie in the 90s, Jim Carrey? You know, um, he, he's, uh, his son says, well, my teacher told me that beauty is on the inside. And Jim Carrey says, well, that's just something, that's just something that ugly people like to say. He said, like, we are always looking uh, for validation outside of us. We're always doing that. Because we were men and intended to find that validation in God himself, the king. We are vice kings reflecting the true king. But the moment you stop facing, you know, if, if the king is the painter and he's painting you, he's creating you in his image, you need to face him. But the moment we turn away from him and turn to someone else and believe that now we're starting to form ourselves in their image, what they would desire, what they would want of us, you know what that does? It makes us very, very miserable, incredibly unhappy. You know why? think about it you know husbands and wives your significant other the moment you say you know i'm going to put my worth i'm going to put my significant i'm going to put significance i'm going to put my glory in you it's very visible number 1 everybody outside of you will be able to see that but the moment you do that what you're saying is now you become very very difficult to live with you know why because now all of your expectations You cannot bear the thought of them being disappointed with you, which means that you will hide from them, you will run from them, you will argue with them, you will be defensive over and over and over again, and you become detestable, unbearable to live with because you just have to be perfect in their eyes. Or they have to be perfect in your eyes. Which means that you're going to be controlling, which means that you're going to be just completely undermining and always, always tyrannical in their lives. Husbands and wives, people with your children, with our children here, with your significant other, in your friendships. On one hand, we're called to build relationships, but the thing is if we, put, if we start to face them, we start to build our lives in their image. And the moment we start to do that, we, we're either going to be controlled by them or we're going to try to control them. We're going to be destroyed by them by a simple word sometimes. Or we're going to destroy them with our words, with our actions. It's very easy to do that. If we're not facing God, we're going to be facing other people. Human approval, professional success, political achievement. I heard an anecdote in a sermon uh, years back about a woman who went to her pastor and said, well, for years, for years and years and years, I put my entire self-worth in the love of my boyfriend. I lived with my boyfriend. I gave him everything he ever wanted, and then he broke up with me after years and years and years, and then he broke up with me, and it just totally devastated my life. I didn't want to, there were times I just didn't even want to live. I was so broken, so hurt, because all I think about it are the things that he said to me, promises that were broken, hurts that were shared, and it plagues me, it haunts me. So what I did was I decided to walk away from men altogether. And instead, all of my worth, all of my love, all of my time, I was going to pour into my work. The amount of intensity of my love for my significant other, I now poured into my work, and it made me very, very successful, and yet just as miserable, just as lonely, just as broken. And I'm starting to learn now that there has to be something else. It can't be put into these things. Depending on whether we seek significance from God or the created order, you're going to either spread life flourishing or you're going to bring destruction and death. You're going to either increase flourishing or you're going to decrease flourishing. If you're facing God with your soul, then either you're going to serve the person, you know, serve other people. You're going to build relationships to serve them. But if you're using people, you know how you know you're using people? Because, you know, your, your mind is constantly working to figure out how I can rule over them, how I can control them, so that I would be happy. That's how you know. Deep inside, that's how you know. You're going to crush them with expectations. It's because your worth is tied to them, and it's going to make us very in- uh, miserable, very unhappy. Now, I know a lot of people over the course of years, it's a very difficult topic. I have a lot of people over the course of years who've come to me and shared with me their story of their brokenness in their relationships, you know, pre-marriage or even during marriage, and after I hear them, usually my counsel, eventually it points to the same counsel. You know why? It's because your worth has become tied to them when it really was intended to be tied to God. And because your worth is tied to them, it's so, you, are, you are so fragile. You've become so fragile. And their response usually goes like this, I know, I know, but. And then later on, they're so, but, dot, dot, dot you know later on they're so unhappy so miserable God says if you reflect my glory if you image me you're not going to take from people you're always going to want to serve you're always going to want to serve you're always going to see inherent value of people. And it doesn't matter, it's not just believers, it's not just people in the church, it's all people. You're going to love even the worst of, the people you you never would have thought you would have loved. You would love, you would serve, because God serves. God is a serving God. It's not like the sun shines only on the church. You know, we get rainy days. And people that we believe don't deserve it get very sunny days. You know, God serves us in every way. If you reflect my glory, work will be about work. It will just be about work. It's not about getting glory. Because you already have glory. You already have glory. So you're not working to get glory. And think about it. If your job is how you know you have value, that's where I need to flourish so that I have glory, so that I have value. You're going to always overwork. You're always going to overwork yourselves. God never overworks us. He never overworks us. In fact, he never, he gives us a mandate to rest in him. You know, he never overworks us. And, and um, um, you're gonna, if you're, but if your job is how you find value, you're, all, you're gonna lie sometimes to get what you want. You know, um, you're gonna lie to get other people's approval. You're gonna lie to keep your job. You're gonna lie so that other people lose their jobs. You're gonna lie to get a better job. In our day-to-day, there's no such thing as an honest resume. Everybody lies on their resumes, you know and and uh, that 's not a blanket statement. not everybody lies on the resumes, but it 's a general statement you know people it 's it's become a, a chronic habit in our world today. People lie, people lie to get ahead, and that means that we 're going to destroy ourselves in many ways now we 're so broken and we 're going to trample on other people because we 're broken people, and we 're going to get trampled on by other people. What can be done? What can be done? What is our hope? What is our repair? First, we talked about our value, then we talked about our brokenness. What is our repair? Look at Jesus, the image of God, the true image of God. Hebrews chapter 1, it's printed in your call to worship, says that the sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint, the exact representation of God. What that means is that Jesus didn't just reflect glory the way the moon reflects the sun. He is the glory of God. It's not. He is the sun reflecting the sun. He is the brightness of the sun reflecting the brightness of the sun. He is God. He is the radiance of God. When the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness, they had this pillar cloud that they followed. The sun is the exact radiance of that Shekinah glory of God. All that weight all that brightness, you couldn't even spare to look at it, otherwise you would be consumed, and yet we find it in the Son of God, Jesus himself, the exact image of God. Colossians chapter 1, verse uh, 15 says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And that word image in Greek is the word icon. Jesus is the icon of God meaning you know jesus says in john chapter 14 you want to know the father you want to see the father because philip the disciple says show us the father and then we'll believe you want to see the father when you see me you have seen the father why do you keep asking me show me the father when you see me you've seen the father that's what jesus says he's the exact image of god and yet in your word of encouragement 2nd corinthians chapter 3 verse 18 i'm going to give you the context of that verse 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. I'm going to read here the context, and I'm going to read verse 18 here. <clears throat> the Apostle Paul writes, yes, uh, well, but their, verse 14, but their minds were hardened. To this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ it's taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, this is the verse that's printed in your bulletins, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. What does that mean? It's kind of enigmatic when you think about it. What does it mean? What he's saying is that there's a kind of person who really doesn't understand the gospel. They don't know the gospel. You know, they may have grown up in the church. They may read scripture, pray daily, but they may not really truly get the gospel because if they did, they would see human value. They would understand the importance of community, not just one or two people in this community, but the whole of this community. They would serve this community. They would serve the city. They would see inherent human value throughout. They would understand their brokenness, and they would see that the only repair is Jesus. And he says, if they, there's a kind of person that doesn't know that, that doesn't get that. So when they read the Bible, there is a veil over their eyes because there is a veil over their hearts. But when they turn to God, when they turn to the gospel, when they see who Jesus is, that he is the icon of God, that's how you turn to God because you see him. When you look at the cross, who do you see? God on the cross. When you turn to God, that veil gets lifted. And you start to understand and you start to know because the Spirit, says it comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. The Spirit enters into our hearts and starts to work and starts to transform us. And he says, it starts to tra- the Spirit transforms us from one degree of splendor to another over and over and over until one day you are made into f- the fullness of the likeness of Christ. That's a beautiful statement. That's the Christian life. That's the Christian life. Amazing. We're going to be transformed from one degree of splendor to the next. What's going to take your soul and win it back? If your heart's been captivated in something else, what's going to take your soul and win it back? What's going to take away your focus from the things around you back to reflecting the sun? What's going to give you that power? What's going to take you away from the focus of how good-looking you are? or not so good looking how smart you are or not so smart how wealthy you are or not so wealthy how athletic you are or not so athletic how healthy you are not so healthy what's going to take away from that focus if you learn to see that the Bible is about Jesus and what he did for you what he did for your salvation that truth is going to transform you into the likeness of Jesus sounds very simple but it's true You're gonna gaze on the beauty of Christ And that's gonna repair you That's what this text is saying Just gazing on the beauty of Christ What's gonna make Jesus beautiful to you? So in a way that you're gonna stop trampling on other people Either because you believe they're bad Or either because they act like they're so good What's gonna keep you from trampling on other people Because your image is broken And yet healed Yet repaired by God How do you do that? Why do you do that? Why do we do that? Here's Jesus the radiance of God's glory the exact representation of God the sun reflecting the sun infinite capacity infinite capacity which means in our from our definition infinite ability to exercise rights and yet he was homeless and yet he was poor and yet people called him crazy and yet, from the moment of his birth, he was almost a victim of infanticide. That's Jesus. He was tortured. He suffered every injustice known to man. And he was hung. He was hung on the cross, which, means, which is to say he was aborted. Jesus, completely destroyed, decreated, uncreated, the creator, uncreated, uncreated. Even though he was the only perfect image of God himself, he was the creator, he was uncreated, he was trampled on, he was stepped all over, and he did it voluntarily for you. He did it voluntarily for us so that we, he would preserve God's image in us so that we could be healed, so that we could be repaired. And that's what makes him beautiful. When you look at the cross, what makes Jesus beautiful? There's nothing beautiful about the cross. There's absolutely nothing beautiful about the cross. It's an old wooden cross that was intended for the greatest of criminals in in their day. And Jesus hanging on the cross, what's beautiful about that? And yet we look at that and we gaze on that and we see through all the blood and all the, the flesh being torn and we say that is beautiful because that is God dying for me. That is the image of God transferring his image onto us and us transferring our image to God. That is our sinfulness being placed on God, on the cross, so that his image, his perfect righteous image will be transferred to us in our lives, one degree of splendor to another. He did it voluntarily for you, and, when you, and then you can face him. You know you can face him without being consumed, and when you face him, you're being recreated from one degree of splendor to another. That's what it means. That's what Christian freedom is to be unleashed, to recognize the fullest of your options, the fullest of your freedom, the fullest of your potential, and the fullest of your joy. We look for it in other ways on our own, and that limits our options. We think this is going to increase my options, but it actually limits our options. There's a cap on that, and that cap will always lead us to misery and unhappiness and death and destruction. But the thing is, when you look at the gospel, when you look at the cross, the destruction that's the infinite becoming destroyed when you see that and you see the beauty of that for you then you can be repaired. You already have glory. You already have acceptance. Everything that you need. All that we need found in Jesus. That's freedom. Your chains will fall right off. And that's the beginning of restoring relationships. That's the beginning. It's 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 a long journey, but that's the beginning. That's the beginning of seeing the human dignity and value. Believer or unbeliever, that's the beginning of serving the city, loving the city, just just pouring out and giving to the city. That's the beginning of that. Until you come to grips with that, you will not. You will not. You will not serve other people genuinely. Will you serve people genuinely for that? Look at the confidence. Look at the power. Look at the love that we have in Christ. When you are gripped by that, it stops being about you. you. It's immediate. It's virtually immediate. You will start to look outward to other people. You will stop complaining about people. You will stop complaining about your, your context. You will embrace your context. No matter what, you will love your context. Husbands will love their spouses more. Wives will love their spouses more. We will love our children more. We will love one another more. We will want to get involved in one another's another's lives more. What's the counter to that? Well, when the gospel turns inward and it hasn't gone deep, you will not feel any need to plug in. You will not feel any need to get involved. You will not, your hearts will not break for the city outside. You will not care about the poor. You are basically just reliving Western thought of who deserves to exercise the capacity of human rights because you do not inherently believe that we were created in God's image. Do you believe that? Will your heart be moved by that? Let's pray.